Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. As we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark, which has been a wonderful reacquainting with Jesus, and hopefully far more than that, a deepening of worship and affection and devotion to Him, and we have a story that gets right at the heart of just what that is and looks like this morning. Mark chapter 14. Let me pray as we go to God's Word. Lord, we are grateful that you love us enough to tell us the truth. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for the truth we find in your Word, for the light, for the life. Thank you that we find it mostly because it points to the one who is the light and the life and the Word who was made flesh. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that once again this morning, we get such a clear glimpse of his worth. And I pray that our devotion would flow from that realization of his worthiness as our hero in the story this morning so clearly understood. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read this amazing passage, have a little discussion together, and then draw out some key points here. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. But let's, let's dig in here and, and draw some things out. Uh, we've used the term Markin sandwich. <laughs> it's 
kind of a funny term, but Mark likes sandwiches. He does. He likes to get a, get a point or a story, but bracket it in between two slices of story bread. Um, so he does. He'll have a, a, a point here and a point here with a point in the middle. This is a double-double. This, this one is a double Markin sandwich. It is. Um, so what are the brackets? The first are Passover. The, the first big pieces of bread here in this sandwich are the Passover preparations and the Passover preparations. We didn't read it, but we started off, we, we, we didn't read it, but right after this story, the disciples and Jesus start to make preparations for their observance of Passover. The, the story's bracketed at the beginning with the Passover being the reason the leaders don't want to kill Jesus now. The city is tripled in size of the population as people throng in from all over the place, staying in the outskirts, people staying with their relatives, camping out. It, it, the religious fervor is heightened, and they say, no, no, let's not do this. It's, it's Passover is coming. And so Passover is the big bracket. But then you have the next layers of bread in the sandwich, and it's rejection of Jesus. So you've got the Passover but bracketing the whole story. But then you've got these brackets of rejection of Jesus. The religious leaders plotting to reject him and then Judas deny uh, rejecting him and betraying him. But nestled in the middle of these two brackets is this incredible story of extravagant devotion. So you've got a mark and double sandwich here. And so it's important to realize the first bracket of Passover is very important to understand the whole story and her devotion and what's going on with this observance of Passover. It'd be hard to argue that any observance of the Jewish calendar religious year was more important than Passover in that it was a remembrance of this glorious provision of God when they were in Egyptian captivity. It says that they didn't want to take Jesus during this time. It would have caused all kinds of problems. It's more likely you're going to get a riot when all these, these religious people are in town and, and some people are following this leader and others aren't. And There's just a high degree of probability that there's going to be all kinds of backlash and problems and it'll probably start a riot and Rome will be really breathing down their neck. So they don't want to do that. And so let's just put it off. It, because Passover's happening. And then Jesus prepares for Passover as well. He says, yes, we're going to observe Passover. But what I want us to realize going into this is for millennia, God is preparing his people for this moment in Jerusalem when Jesus goes to a cross. Jesus actually refers in the Gospels, to his journey to the cross and his going to the cross as his exodus. And so the Passover becomes this very important observance because what is it? The Israelites in Egyptian captivity, God liberates them through the plagues, none of which seemed to work until the last one, which was God slaying the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians, all those who wouldn't take the blood of the sacrificed lamb and put it on their doorpost. And when they would do that in faith, the angel of death would pass over that home and death wouldn't strike that home. That's the, the plague that leads to the final release and then journey through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and eventually the promised land. So it becomes this historical marker for God's amazing, miraculous, self-sacrificial provision. 
And so that becomes this hallmark. So you gather like they are here to observe this amazing remembrance and this time of unleavened bread where they didn't have it had time and they had to take the bread before it was yeast was used wasn't used for it so that they could travel with this bread. And so it becomes this this eight day festival that they're all gathering for. Now it's two days before that, but already the place is swelled and the population's exploding and the excitement's high. And they say, let's not do it here. But what I want you to realize is that in all of this, all of these events, all of this evil we see, and these leaders are plotting and scheming to kill Jesus. And Judas is part of the scheming, and he's betraying his dear master and friend. And great evil is happening here. There is great darkness in this passage. There is great tragedy in this passage. But this is a story of good news. Why? Because God is always, always sovereignly working out his good plan to bring freedom, to bring forgiveness, and to display his glory all the time, even in the midst of evil. I mean, let's think about what's happening here. These leaders are plotting and strategizing, and God's using all of their efforts so that they end up unwittingly serving God's purposes. It really is fascinating that all of these evil efforts, these these, uh, confounding of, of Jesus, they're trying to kill Jesus, not realizing that it's in the death of Jesus God's purposes will be ultimately glorified. Uh, Satan knows this and he's trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross and having a crown without a cross and Jesus will have none of it. And in the process of trying to resist what God's doing, they're actually accomplishing his very purposes. I grew up in in uh, Connecticut, and dandelions were everywhere in Connecticut. And I remember being a kid thinking dandelions were great. I actually played a dandelion in a play (laughs) in kindergarten in a play called The Wedding of the Flowers. I was the only white dandelion among all the kids in my class. Benji Bernard Bostic and Godfrey DeWar were next to me. I looked like a very strange dandelion because I was the only white one. And, And there I was in The Wedding of the Flowers, and uh, we have pictures of it. It's quite embarrassing. I could show you. But I love dandelions. I thought dandelions were great flowers. And I'll never forget how I felt when my father told me, oh, no, they're not actually flowers. They're weeds, and they ruin your lawn, and you shouldn't like dandelions. I was really bothered by this, especially since I was one. And, uh, and I remember being the day, but I, I remember when dandelions would go to seed. I didn't know that's what it was called. And I thought one of the coolest things in nature was finding a big old dandelion that had gone to seed and just Especially when I found out they were weeds. And I said, that's it. This dandelion will no longer damage our lawn. And I would ruin, and I remember being a kid and actually feeling like I was helping the cause of wiping out these weeds. And I remember my dad told me, actually, Eric, you're doing the worst thing possible. You're actually planting dandelions when you blow on them like that. It was very confusing to be a child. But I remember realizing this, oh, these are seeds. And when, you, when I've been trying to wipe out this dandelion, I've actually been furthering the cause of the weed. Now, it's a bad illustration because Jesus is not a dandelion or a weed. 
But these leaders are trying to wipe Jesus out and kill him and stop all of this. And every time they do, they're just furthering God's causes. You know, we should hate ISIS and what they're doing in this world. But anytime we see evil, even evil that great, deep down we should say, hmm, I wonder how God is going to be working in this for his glory and for great good, because he is, you know. He is, and in this passage we see this, don't we? We see this glorious using of all of these efforts to stop God's purposes, and those very efforts become God's way of accomplishing his purposes. And so what's Jesus doing? He's teaching us some incredibly important things. He's showing us that a shift is taking place. Like with the Passover. Uh, a few days before this, Jesus leaves the temple for the last time. Remember? And he's not happy when he leaves. He realizes that judgment's coming and that the day of the temple is done. In the sense that the temple had always been a foreshadowing of Jesus himself as the place you meet with and worship God. He leaves Jerusalem. He's in Bethany here. He turns his back on the ways you've, you've thought of meeting with God before in the city of Zion, in the temple, because he wants us to realize a massive shift is taking place. And the temple isn't going to be the primary place you meet with God anymore. It's in Christ himself. The city of Zion becomes a place, yes, people throng at the end of the age, but they throng not just to the city, but to the king who rules over the city. And you realize here the Passover in Egypt was again just a foreshadowing of the great Passover when Jesus would be that lamb who was killed, whose blood is spilled so that the angel of death would pass over us and we wouldn't have to die forever because our sins could be forgiven by the atoning work of that blood. A shift is taking place. And as Jesus in just a little while now takes the Last Supper, this Passover observance with his disciples, He's pointing them beyond the Passover in Israel's history to himself. The shift is on, and Jesus wants them and for us to see it. Even this woman's extravagant devotion is being interpreted by Jesus in a way that I think goes beyond even her wildest dreams or intentions. Now, we're not told how much this woman knew. She obviously had an understanding that was deeper and more accurate than the disciples even sitting in that room. But I can't imagine she knew the full implications of what she was doing and the way Jesus interpreted it. I wonder if when he said, oh, she did a beautiful thing for me. You need to realize that what she's doing is anointing me for my burial. I wonder if she was stunned by this, that her devotion was pointing to a beauty that was well beyond what was happening in that room. You know, Jesus would not be anointed for his burial. Remember the woman ta women take spices to go anoint him after the fact? Because the only person who wouldn't get the proper anointing and burial was a criminal. 
This is how Jesus was viewed. Remember, the women brought their spices to anoint him after, and he didn't need it because he had risen by then. But she's, she's doing something that Jesus says, oh, this isn't just beautiful because of what's happening here. This is beautiful, again, of what it's pointing to, which is my death, which is my burial. She's doing a beautiful thing because she's preparing me for that ahead of time. And then he says, and whenever the good news is preached, whenever the gospel is preached, what she did, who she is will be remembered whenever that happens. I don't think that necessarily means every time we preach the gospel we need to talk about this woman in this story. But what it means is, is there is a kind of devotion that this story's all about that needs to be there whenever the gospel of Christ is preached. First and foremost, his devotion to the will of his father and to the people he came to die for. And then for the kind of devotion that calls us to as well. And so Jesus says, oh, I'm dying. I'm going to be buried, but I'll rise from the dead. He's pointing ahead to his resurrection when he says this, when he says this is actually going to be good news. The gospel means good news. And so this tragedy will become great and glorious news, just like the angels said it would when Jesus came in the first place. And they said, we have good news of great joy for all peoples. The tragedy becomes good news. The darkness becomes beautiful and glorious light. And that's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying this good news that this will become will be proclaimed to all nations. He's anticipating here that the good news of what his death accomplishes will be proclaimed to the uttermost parts of the earth. No doubt even this woman is stunned at the deep implications, the far-reaching implications of what she's doing here. Do you see how God's at work? Even in her beautiful devotion, God's doing something well beyond probably even her wildest dreams. Oh, is that encouraging to you? Do you ever feel like even your most faithful efforts don't seem to be having an impact or making a difference? Don't seem to be valued or appreciated? How good to know that God sees it all and he interprets it from his vantage point and rewards it accordingly. Oh, that's a beautiful thing to realize. So encouraging that our simple acts of faithfulness are seen by God and God delights in them them, and he interprets them and his interpretation is the only one that matters. Do you realize how ironic this whole story is? These ironic contrasts. I don't think we can really get this story well unless we go back a couple chapters to the passage about the woman who just gave less than a penny, this widow who comes and Jesus says, oh, did you see that? See that woman? Yeah, yeah. She gave more than all the really rich people gave today. See, there he is again, interpreting it from his perspective, not from a worldly perspective. And he's helping his disciples to realize that the one who seems least impressive from the world's vantage point is actually the most impressive from God's, just like in our story. The leaders, the the disciples, the ones in the know, the religious leaders who are actually opposing Jesus and trying to kill him, they don't get it. But this unnamed woman and this unnamed widow who have nothing impressive from a worldly standpoint are the ones who really get it and who are really the heroes here. I just love this. Do you get how radically contrasting this is? You've got unnamed women Like Susan said, not valued in that society. 
And you've got leaders, and the leaders, the ones who should get it, don't, and the ones who seemingly get marginalized, get it. There's a wonderful contrasting picture here. This ironic contrasting view of a poor widow and a criticized woman who are unnamed being part of the anointing ceremony for the king. Anointing ceremonies prepared a king or a priest or a prophet for ministry and the symbolic anointing of this or this symbol of the Holy Spirit would be poured on them. Did you ever read in the Old Testament these descriptions of the Messiah and it says oil is dripping from his beard and you think, and that's a good thing. Yes, it's a good thing. It, it's a sign of a rich provision by God himself so that this, this king can fulfill his goal. And here, imagine the people who were there this, this perfume, this ointment was precious and, and amazing. And no doubt the people in that room left the room smelling like that perfume. Have you ever spent a few hours at Starbucks? You leave smelling like Starbucks? You know what I'm talking about? That's why I avoid the place, actually. I don't like smelling like evaporated coffee or whatever that is. Uh... Yeah, but imagine leaving this room where this overwhelming perfume no doubt leaves you smelling like this moment. Maybe for days people were being asked, wow, what is that glorious fragrance? Oh, I was at a leper's house and a woman whose name I don't know anointed a king wasn't a priest, and it wasn't at the temple. It was at the least likely place by the least likely person. That's how God works, you know. He's always flipping our expectations upside down. Mark loves to pound away at this idea that from God's perspective, it's the last who are first and the first who are last, and the greatest are the servants of all. He really wants us to get that, and this story is one more effort for us to get that. If you don't understand God's economy in this, what's been called the upside-down kingdom, you won't get a king and a cross going together. This is the theme of our series because Mark is trying to get at this as much as anything. See, with, with God, the king and the cross go together. A crucified king makes no sense from the world's standpoint, but it makes all kinds of sense from God's standpoint. Hey, let's talk about her devotion. We haven't quite done that yet. Um, Let's talk about this kind of devotion she has here. We have a photograph of a, an ancient alabaster jar. There it is. So this woman with this jar that's probably the size of a two-liter bottle of soda, can't even hide it on her way to the dinner, uh, walks into this place, no doubt knowing she will be looked down upon, and breaks this jar and pours it on Jesus. And it's an amazing thing for three reasons. It's expensive, it's extravagant, and it's expressed. Um, it's expensive. Mark tells us that it's 300 denarii. Do you know he tells us in Mark 6 that you needed 200 denarii to feed 5,000 people? 
Two-thirds of what this woman just spent on Jesus could have fed 5,000 people dinner. Have you ever picked up the tab at a nice restaurant for a large group? It can be sort of stunning, yes? Well, get that. 200 there, I would feed 5,000 people. She just blew the entire year's wages of a manual laborer. What, $45,000 for us, right? Contrast that with the fact that Judas basically sold his master for a thousand bucks. And this woman spends, you know how long it takes to save a year's wage? I don't mean uh, just have a year's wage, I mean save it. Maybe this was a fair family heirloom. Maybe this had been, been saved for, for, for generations in her family. Maybe, as was often the case, she was saving this for her wedding day or her funeral. And something happens in her heart, in light of who Jesus is, that changes her so much that she wastes the whole thing on Jesus. The whole thing. As one of you said, she broke it. It's not a little dab behind the ears or on the wrist here. No, she pours it on his head as this beautiful symbol of overflowing provision and anointing by God himself. This is just glorious what she's doing here. Think about the expensiveness of this. Think about the extravagance of this. Like we said, nothing left when she's done. Literally what Jesus says about her devotion, her expression here, is all she had, she gave. All she had, she gave. It's, it's very similar. It's even prefaced in the identical way of the way Jesus describes the widow who gave less than a penny. She gave all she had. What she was, she gave. What she had, she just gave it. She gave all she could. She did what she could. And he calls out these leaders who aren't seeing her sacrifice, her devotion, the way he does. It's a beautiful description. Actually, Mark has this clumsy verse because he seems to be so excited in this description of this, this gift that he, he just starts piling up adjectives. And, and he says, this ointment it was genuine, it was real, it wasn't a knockoff, it, it wasn't a Rolex fake, no, this was the real, oh, that's a bad illustration, what's fancy perfume, I don't even know. What is it? What is it? White diamond, wow, yeah. It wasn't a fake version of that where they changed a the letter, no, it, no, this is the real thing. It was genuine, it was pure, this ointment was. It was nard, probably imported from India. It was very costly. He's excited about how grand this gift is. And it's, it's wonderfully given without any reservation. She breaks the jars, fills the room with this fragrance. What she had, she did, Jesus tells us. And he says this is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. Literally, a good work. Why would we translate good thing, a beautiful thing? Because when something's good, when it fulfills all it's intended to do and accomplish and be, it's a good thing. It fulfills its purpose, and you get a sense of peace. Oh, yes. You don't watch a sunset over Laguna and say, hmm, wish I could just tweak the timing of that a bit or just alter those clouds a little. No, you don't want to tweak it and make it better. You don't listen to Bach and think of all the improvements you want to make. Hopefully. Or you're arrogant. 
right? You hear beauty and you say, oh, this is right, this is good. And Jesus says this is a beautiful thing. If you're only driven by pragmatic thinking, utilitarian thinking, which is so incredibly American, Ben Franklin, Stitchens Tine, Staves Nine, you know, a penny saved is a penny earned, poor Richard's Almanac. It's so American to be so utilitarian and practical. That's how we decide what's right and good. Does it work? You know, a politician can be a horrible person, say horrible things, but if he's gonna make things work, I don't care. I just, it needs to work. Is it gonna work? It's gonna give me what I want. And before you know it, we're just driven by the bottom line and our practical estimations of things. Pure utilitarianism, pure pragmatic thinking, just the, the, the practical ends never creates beauty. If that's all you've got, you never get heroism. If that's all you've got, you've never got extravagant devotion. And, and if that's all we are as a people, is practical. And defining good stewardship is just, you know, making sure you've got everything tied up financially and emotionally and you've got all these boundaries and you never take any risks, you never do anything that seems even extravagant from the outside. Is that really what it means to have the kind of devotion God calls us to? I don't think so. I think this woman is given to us to exhort us and convict us and bring us to a whole new level of an understanding of what security in Christ leads to. And that is what looks like radical extravagance to the world. And, and that's it, it's, it's expensive, it's extravagant, and it's expressed. It's expressed. It finds expression in a public context that even leads to great criticism in these people saying, how could she do that? That's disgusting. What a waste. And the word here is growl, like I said. They're really ticked about it. Can you believe that woman? What in the world? You know what could have been done with that? She is just out of line here. What an idiot. I can't believe it. And they can't even keep it to themselves. It says they're grumbling among, growling among themselves. And finally they can't. It just spills over and they, they scold her. What are you doing? Oh, that sounds like a lot of religious people. And Jesus says, shut up. That's the Tannis paraphrase of what Jesus says here. That's what I would have said, shut up. Why are you bothering her? Why are you giving her a hard time? Why are you troubling her? Leave her alone. He's got her back because he knows what she's doing is the right thing. And they're the ones totally missing it. Totally missing it. And she's extravagantly, expensively giving because she sees Jesus for who he is. The most important words in this is she's done a beautiful thing to me. To me, she's obviously seen me for who I am. And so now she's done a beautiful thing because she sees me rightly. See, that's the whole thing here. She sees Jesus for who he really is, not somebody who should be sold for, for 30 pieces of silver because he's not fulfilling my expectations, but someone worthy of all she had. Of all she is, what she had, she gave. Oh, she's not like the religious people who should know better. 
She gets it so beautifully and extravagantly and expressively. This is PDA at its best. You know PDA? Public displays of affection. We went to the beach with the Statinas the other, the other day and, and there was a couple on the beach expressing PDA that made me want to take my family and theirs elsewhere. I wanted to say, what is your deal? I, I did, I wanted to say, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's what I wanted to say. And I usually hate PDA, but this is public display of affection at its very best. This is for Christ. This is glorious. This is the kind of devotion to which we are all called. She is showing us something grand and glorious and wonderful here. And if we're just driven by pragmatic outcomes, practical outcomes, we'll never be like this. It was a beautiful action. And beauty defies a cost analysis assessment, doesn't it? Oh, you can put a price on a beautiful Bruegel painting. But come on, doesn't beauty so defy that sort of thing? Listen to this quote. Usefulness is not our God. One of you said that, basically. Efficiency is not our God. Public opinion is not our God. Testimonial, uh, traditional boundaries of politeness are not our God. Jesus is our God. And it is useful to use up all we are and all we have to glorify and worship him. That's it, that's what our lives are for. It was C.T. Studd and his wife Priscilla who gave away all their money. Actually, C.T. Studd was an incredibly gifted athlete. He was the star athlete in, in the United Kingdom at the time, the star cricket player. I could go on and on about how gifted and, and blessed this guy was. Millionaire, came, one of the Cambridge Seven. He decides... Uh, to come to Christ at a moody revival meeting. And then six years later, he sees his brother on the verge of death and he rethinks everything. And he says, what is the fame? What is the fortune? If not lived in light of eternity, and not, if not lived in light of who Christ is, and he's the one that wrote the poem from which we get the line. What's the line? Oh, uh, this too will life will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Yes. What, what is the line? Help me. Yes, one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He gave his fortune away. He, he kept behind a whole bunch to pr- pr- provide for his wife when he died. She found that out and was angry with him and said, what? You don't think I have the faith you do? Give it away to William Booth to start the Salvation Army. Give it away. I'm a Christian because of the Salvation Army. And, 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 and I owe it to the studs. Yeah, they gave it away. And we give our lives away. We give ourselves away. See, that's why food bank is such a glorious thing. Because when people come to the door, we don't say, do you really need this? Can we see your tax statement from last year to decide whether you need this or not? Because we're not giving you anything if you don't really need it. And you need extra? I'm sorry, no. No, there's this, yeah, come on. Come on, here's food, lots and lots of it. What do you need? Come on. And we'll pray for you and we'll minister to you. There's a giving away of self, and see this devotion to Christ always ends up in caring for the poor and being like Jesus to them because he came to preach the good news to the poor as the ultimate poor one. And so Jesus is our devotion. He's he's our everything to us. He's the one for whom we live, and it's expressed. 
And it's, it's like David. And remember 2 Samuel 7 when the ark is finally coming back to Jerusalem and he's so excited that God will finally be worshiped again as he's intended among the people of God. He's so excited he dances, it says, with all his might. With all his might, his wife is growling at him. Oh, that's really dignified, king. And then she's, she's just like the guys in this story. Oh, look at you. Questioning his motives for all sorts of horrible things. No, he's worshiping God with all his might. Is that how someone would describe the way you worship God? With all your might. Do you get up on Sunday morning and say, I get to go among the people of God this morning and worship our creator together. Here we go. Or is there a lackadaisical approach to worship in your life, publicly and privately? I came across this little clip of this boy, this little baby who loves this song, obviously, that comes on while he's playing, and he jumps up and starts dancing to it. I was thinking, that's how I want to be when I have an opportunity to worship. Watch this clip of this boy. Yeah, how great is that? Did you see him? He's just chilling, he's worshiping. Then the song comes on, he's like, whoa! I get to dance to Nene, right? And it's, or watch me, or whatever it's called. Yeah, that little kid is so convicting to me, because he's like, all right, let's go to church. Come on, kids, let's go. And, and there's not a sense so often of, whoa! We get to do this, we get to worship God. We get to hear from his voice, come. Come and worship me. And when all we should hear is depart from me, we hear come. That's something to get like that about. And I'm not saying you need all of a sudden have this, this personality transplant, but maybe a tweak a little bit would be nice. Maybe the, the freedom to say, I've been redeemed. This woman with exuberant, extravagant, expensive worship shows us something powerful here. But... She is not the main point. She liked the temple. She liked Jerusalem. She, like Passover, is once again pointing to something beyond all those things. Why is she to be mentioned when the gospel's preached in the world? Because her giving is a whole lot like Jesus' giving. See, he gives expensively and extravagantly and in an expressed way. He gives himself. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. She's anointing him for his burial, and she's important because she points us to him, just like the woman who gave her all in the offering. She points to Jesus too. Any expression we have in our lives of loving and giving extravagantly or expensively is just pointing back to the one who loved us first that way. That's what this is about. That's what food bank's about. That's what I look out on so many of your faces, and I see, and I know how many times you've given in so many ways. And I see this practiced in everyday life so consistently here. And so let's, as a people, so rest in Jesus because he extravagantly gave himself to us the way he did that we are freed up to love like him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing good news of the gospel.
Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that the story doesn't end with the death and the burial. But Easter Sunday morning, everything changes. Now nothing's the same. Thank you, Lord, for this example, this woman who saw the beauty of Christ and nothing was the same for her. And now probably her most treasured possession becomes expendable as an expression of her devotion to Christ. Help us, Lord, to understand this more deeply, we pray in the name of the anointed one. Amen.